and welcome to Happy Place, the show which hears the problems that have faced my guests in their life in the hope we can all learn how to overcome our own. I'm Fern Cotton and today we're in the company of journalist and author Sarah Wilson. A lot of what we do is try to chase kind of cheap happiness, yeah, and avoid, which is Quick I receive avoidance, yeah? yeah. A rich life is a far better life. We've got what eighty five odd years on the planet. I don't want to kind of have a smile on my dial and don't worry, be happy and all that kind of stuff. I want to live. Sarah wrote the best-selling book, I Quit Sugar, which has taken her on a journey of discovery, including a chapter you might not expect. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And now, here's the show. Wilson, what a joy to have you in my house. I love being in your house. It's actually a home. Like, it feels it really homely. Yeah, it's, it's chaotic, but it's quite peaceful actually today at home. But I'm, I'm so glad that we made this work because you were meant to come over last week or the week before and I got a vomiting bug, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, it was horrific. And Then I went to Jordan. You went to Jordan and I've been following you on Instagram, hiking everywhere. Yeah. And how was that? It was incredible, actually. It was a really lovely culture shock, and I need grounding all the time in dirt. So I grew up in dirt. I grew up in a very sort of dirt-based kind of environment. And even in Australia, which is where I live, and I live in Bondi, Sydney, when things get too frenetic, I literally just pack on my tent and my sleeping bag, and I head out to dirt. Do and you? Yeah, yeah. And I'll just Love go and find that. somewhere to camp for the night, sort of in a national park where I'll just find a little kind of corner under a tree, and I'll just camp for the night, sleeping on the ground. I have the best night's sleep. I sleep eight to nine hours, and I'm insomniac otherwise. And I come home, and I'm fixed. I'm fixed for another month or so. What so. beautiful remedy that yeah. is available and free and you can just go and do that yeah why yeah. not I know I, I do get a sense of how weird it is for a 45 year old woman to go and just but find why dirt is it weird isn't that strange why yeah. is it it should be normal that's yeah. a very normal natural remedy I know I know but you know Instagram tells me it's weird because everybody <laughs> everybody kind of treats it like a marvel for me it's primal yeah you know we were just talking about Instagram earlier and I mean my friends and family say, why are you Instagram? Why do you bother with all of that? I literally do it to show images of myself out there doing stuff that other people find kind of challenging, but they deeply want to do it, you know? So lying in dirt or just hiking with just, you know, the one kind of pair of shorts, one pair of undies and go out and just, I don't know, reconnect. It's sort of my modus operandi and especially to encourage women because I was lucky to grow up in the country with a lot of brothers, like I have four brothers. And, you know, I engaged in climbing trees, swimming through dams, chasing snakes and, and so on. And 
you learn to fend. And I love that word, to fend, like fend for yourself. Get out there and use your body as it's meant to be used. Well, we don't do it enough, do we? Because no. everything's about convenience and ease and we've been... And it's making us miserable. It's making us miserable. We think it's making life easier and we think that fast equals, you know, excellence or happiness. And it's actually really taking its toll on all of us. And yeah. getting back to basics is such uh, an important thing. I mean, I've talked about this in in other ways previously on here and sometimes when I've been writing about stuff, but I'm trying to head more that way in life. I haven't been out camping in my local park yet, but we take the kids out and we get our shoes off and we just walk barefoot yeah. and go in the streams and... It's just such a simple, lovely joy. The more we touch those moments, the more we're able to kind of witness ourselves in the world. And I think so much of what we're doing, we're caught up and the whole system keeps us caught up and we crave it. We really crave it. The book that I know that we connected over, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, um, which is about a reframing of anxiety and bipolar. Here I'm selling my own book in, right? I sound like I'm reading a (laughs) It's a powerful book. I mean, there were times where I was reading, I was like, I need to put it down for a minute and digest that because a lot of the time there's been a lot of symmetry between what you've been going through and what I've been going through. And it was like, I could have written it. I mean, you wrote it way more eloquently than I could but like holy crap like especially the sleep thing and there's a bit that really sticks out of my memory where you describe a moment where you're crouching on a table in the middle of the night yeah yeah tell us about because that for me was like that's me yeah that's me you have these moment, private moments of madness, don't yeah. you, when you don't sleep? Yeah. Um, insomnia is a really horrible, catch-22, painful, no-escape experience. There's nothing really quite like it, and it does send you mad. I don't stand on you know, my pulpit saying, I'm cured, and I've got this great technique, and I'm going to put a TM on it, you know, trademark it, and you know, roll it out around the world and act as though I've solved it all. It's not that at all. My book is a conversation, and so throughout the book, I actually write slabs of it where I'm going through real life freakouts and anxiety attacks and even suicidal moments which I think is probably what people do find confronting because self-help books don't tend to kind of write it out that way so yeah there was a moment where I was writing it where I actually just sat naked crouched with a pen and paper and just wrote out my panic attack or I call them anxiety spirals it's not so much a panic attack it's more that it's like one million thoughts just crowding down on me and pulling me out in infinite directions. And so the net result is zero movement and I'm just stuck in this kind of clusterfuck of thoughts. And um, in the middle of the night, that translates as absolute terror. It is, because you're on your own and you can't talk to anyone and you feel like... I'm the only one not capable of sleeping. Everyone else right now is in their beds, it's the conked out. Feeling. It is the pits. Yeah. The and, then, pits. and then if you're an A-type, which a lot of anxious people are and a lot of insomniacs are, then all you can think about is the next day yeah. about um, failing and letting Trimmed. people down and not enjoying it because your head is in a fog, often from sleeping tablets, you know, thrown into the mix. And then you take coffee in the morning and you're frenzied and frazzled. 
And look, you know, one of the techniques and one of the tips I share in the book is to do anxiety once. So a big thing that I've explored and writing the book helped with that. I don't know if you've found this, like quite often when you, yeah. with this podcast, exploring yeah. these ideas actually gets you fired up and vigilant about the shit you talk about. Yeah, and you I know? feel less alienated, which is the main thing. Exactly. I feel like even sat here talking to you, oh my God, yeah. you get it. Yeah. And I'm not alone in this. And, yeah. you know, I'll be honest, sometimes with my husband, my sleep thing drives him insane. Because yeah. I'll go through periods where I say, I know this is awful, but you cannot sleep in the bed with me tonight. Yeah. I need I find one of us difficult. to sleep in a different room. Yeah. And I know it might not be classed as normal, but for this week, I can't deal with trying to solve that problem right now do you know how many couples who have to have that conversation and go through it and feel like they're the only weird people doing it you do so many of my friends talk about it now but it's kind of not something that you talk about in polite places but the thing I often say to people is do anxiety once so yes you haven't slept but just have that level of pain don't then get anxious about being anxious and then what happens is you then get anxious about being anxious about being anxious mm-hmm. and of course you're kind of it's becoming exponentially yeah. fucked yeah. you know one of the things also that I share is that for instance a panic attack only lasts 20 to 30 minutes and when you know that you just have to sit in it write it out and you do it once and you can recover and hopefully move forward and get on with it and learn from it whereas our culture doesn't have this discussion. We don't have this discussion about sitting in the pain, the discomfort. We run from it. We self-flagellate, which just makes it worse and worse, and we compound it, you know? I completely agree, because you add shame into the mix, which is a toxic, horrific emotion to bring it into it all. I've had it so many times where... I've had, for instance, radio very early in the morning and I always want to do it well, fundamentally because I love it. This is the weird thing. It's not because I'm dreading it. Yeah. I love it so much and I want it to go so well. But you've also been given a platform and you're aware of the responsibility mm. and the gift, right? Yeah, yeah, So yeah. you want to kind I of be do vibrant. Well. Yeah. I want to be vibrant. I want to do it well. I want to give it my full whack and attention and focus. So like you say, I have the initial anxiety, then I pile on top tomorrow's ruined you're going to do an awful show and then the next layer is the shame and you're the only one you're a freak yeah you know you've had a beta blocker that didn't even work what's yeah. the, wrong with you you know and then the next day you are absolutely mentally frazzled because you know if I just sit and I have learned to do this more recently like I didn't sleep well the night before last and I thought so so what yeah just to have a shit night's sleep like yeah. big deal get up the next day See what happens. And actually, I felt all right. Yeah. I felt yeah, fine. I, I got through the day. I even went to a gig last night, which I haven't done for so long. I was fine. Yeah. Because I just stayed. Because you did anxiety once. Pa- I've never had a term for it or mm. known there was any terminology around it. But anxiety once, good. I like that. I'm yeah. going to use that. It's, it's, it's manageable and also normalized, you know? Yeah. Anxiety only entered the DSM, which is the main manual that psychiatrists use in the Western world to diagnose various disorders. It only entered it in 1980. But what actually is it? Is it a restlessness? Is it... Is it pure fear? Like what? Yeah. what how so at a biological you... level, yeah, no, it's a great question. So at a biological level, it's the flight or fight response, yeah. which we emerge from the primordial soup and the prefrontal cortex built in and around that, right? So it is absolutely core to our human existence and without it, we wouldn't exist. So that is what I call fair enough anxiety where it's an appropriate fear response to something that we've got to keep our you know, wits about. There's about 1.2 to 1.4% of the population 
anywhere in the world. So if you're talking here in London or whether you're talking Sydney or the Sahara Desert or the Amazon, 1.2 to 1.4% of the population have what is called disordered anxiety. So OCD, bipolar, and so on. And it's extraordinary, right, that that percentage exists wherever you go in the world. Mm. And what evolutionary biologists say is that kind of anxiety exists as a sort of a genetic quirk to keep the human experience propelling forward. Mm. So these people throughout history were either shaman who had OCD and made sure that we had high levels of safety and hygiene because OCD is always about safety and hygiene, even to this day. Um, Or, you know, you had the bipolar caveman who went over the hill and had this wacko idea and went over this hill and went, came back and went, hey, guys, they've invented the wheel over there. Mm. We should get onto it, Mm. you know. So it existed for that reason. And I love that. I love that both normal or fair enough anxiety and disordered anxiety exists for a really important yeah, purpose. Yeah, there's a purpose. Yeah. I love that. So that's how I define anxiety. There's two types and both of which we need in our culture. Now, I am very much in that 1.2 to 1.4%. I've got both bipolar and OCD and it took me until my 40s to realize that this could actually be seen as a good thing it could be seen as something that serves a purpose and also even just knowing there's not much I can do about it apart from passing through it and sitting within it so has that changed your relationship with with yourself, with how you see yourself, is it is it amplified your self love, your self worth, knowing that you're yeah. not? Because I've always felt very flawed when I've had crazy amounts of anxiety, where I've had crazy panic attacks on the roads or in my bed trying to get to sleep yeah. and my heart's racing. I see myself as flawed. I am yeah. wrong. I am. You should be able wrong to get this with right. me. Yeah, you're so a hard worker. You've got to find a solution. Always looking for a solution. All yeah. that perfection. Like, why am I not just this like perfect person who breezes through life? Yeah. So having a diagnosis and also looking at historically what anxiety has meant, you can actually see some positives and actually mitigate the shame and the notion the of being flawed. Yeah, the loneliness. One of the most, I don't know, fruitful things, beneficial things that has come about from from all of this is I had to research this book and I, it took me seven years. But in that process... Did it really? Yeah. Bloody hell. Yeah. I travelled around, I mean, I spoke to over 100 experts from His Holiness the Dalai Lama to Oprah's, you know, life coach and Greek shepherds in Ikaria mm. and so on. And what I found so comforting was reading other people's stories. Yes. And realising that this is something that has been interwoven throughout history. Friedrich Nietzsche's theories came from the isolation he had to descend into to cope with his anxiety. And, and you know, amazing artists and everything, everything stems from this friction. So, yeah, it's brought peace. And I've got to say from an egoic point of view, if I'm going to really be honest, it's made me feel like there's a certain specialness to it. I don't think that egoic aspect of what I'm talking about is going to get out of control because as you say the shame will always kick in but it's been a nice counterpoint it's balanced all of that out so when I'm feeling ashamed I'm able to have a conversation in my head that goes okay Sarah you know what there's a bigger picture here there's a bigger picture and you know for whatever reason you've been put on this planet with this stuff in your head this intensity this hypersensitivity to absolutely everything it's it's not ideal and it's not much fun at times however you know what this is an opportunity to actually now use it so I actually feel quite 
emboldened, I suppose. Yeah. I feel like I've got a responsibility to use it. And you are, my God. I mean, the plethora of things that you've done to, you know, reach out to other people and, uh, you know, even just writing that amazing book, which, you know, had me within the first two lines. I was like, I'm in. This is totally, I get this. I'm connected to it. Yeah. You know, you are absolutely doing that. And I think... Um, the fact that you just said there, you know, you've really recognised when you were doing all that research for those years that hearing other people's stories can be so, I don't know how, if you, if you feel the same, but relieving. And even last night when I was at this gig, I'm not necessarily good in big crowds and I instantly feel slightly on edge. But once I stood there, and it was at Wembley Stadium, so there's like 60,000 yeah. on people there. You've got all these different people, all ages, all walks of life. And I actually stood there and went... Every one of these people is dealing with something right yeah. now. And it's not often you'll stand in front of that many people and see that many humans. And I was like, because you know, you'll walk down your local high street, you'll bump into two neighbours and you assume yeah. everything's fine. But having that amount of people in front of me, I really went, oh my God, it's not just me worrying about, I'm going to bed a bit later than I normally would. It's making me feel anxious. I'm going to ask my <laughs> husband if we can leave 10 minutes early and that's going to piss so him off. You're not going to get stuck in the crowd. Then I asked him if he could stay in a different bedroom in the house because my stepkids weren't here. And, and then I feel like I'm letting him down. You know, I thought, wait a minute, get some perspective. Everybody yeah. is dealing with something. And it's that's a so, nice thought. It isn't it. I think we crave those opportunities to pull back from our the conversation that, kind of goes on a loop all day every day and connect with humanity in that way and you know I am very grateful that I've had that opportunity with this book quite selfishly as I say quite early in the book my friend Rick said to me um he said you know why are you doing this book why on earth would you do it and I said because I want to feel less alone I want to have a conversation that nobody else is going to have with me at the moment. So I'm just going to have it publicly. It has shifted my life because I don't run into people in the streets and have small chat anymore. People <laughs> come, come and go straight to the, yeah. the shit that matters, you yeah. know, the granular, I love that. the heart stuff. Well, we just did that there. We'd never we met. And then 10 in. minutes and I was like, okay, we're best friends. Yeah, we're talking <laughs> we bowel movement. straight to the poo <laughs> and the shit. <laughs> and it's got real. And, yeah. you know, the world's speeding up. Yeah. And... We run the risk of being kind of spun out in that centrifugal force into a real place of loneliness and disconnect. And so if we can find those touch points and being at a concert like that, it's kind of surreal enough to make you pull back, you know what I mean? And I love that kind of there's this Vedic concept of being really close to the screen at a movie and you're just kind of there and you are, you think you're part of the movie. And then there's a problem of being too far back in the in the cinema where you are too, totally disconnected. It's finding that sweet spot mm. where you feel that you're still part of the story but you can pull back and you can see that you're in a room full of people who all have beating hearts, they have their pain, they've all got to go home at the end of the night and look at themselves in the fluorescent glare of their bathroom mirror yep. and go, this is it. Mm. This is it. It's, it's it's me. Here I am. I'm about to go to bed with yep. myself. It's just me going and the to bed wrinkles, right now. What's, my makeup's yeah. all off, and I'm feeling, <clears throat> you know, the full ugliness of the human experience. And we crave moments to touch that with each other. And I think that's why we love those big communal things yeah. and all the extinction rebellion stuff and all that stuff that is actually bringing us together yeah. at the moment. I mean, part of the thing that I say in First We Make the Beast Beautiful is, and you touched on it in one of your questions just a moment ago, is that anxiety in many ways is an existential crying out. It's a crying out for a something else. I call it the something else. And we don't even know what that 
is, do we? Mm. But we're crying out and I would put it down to a connection. Yeah. We want to connect. We yearn it. We yearn it. And we're connecting so much less, although we think we're doing it more because we have computers and phones, but it's actually... Connection light. Completely. It's separated that us sitting, looking to each other's eyes on on a one-on-one and having a deep chat or just your story resonating with someone else or vice versa because you can't really do that on your phone you can't really do that over email and we're very risk averse as well i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So this morning, I mean, I've just been having a bit of a rough time. I've got some stuff going on with uh, just... I've overcomplicated my life and it's just all cr- you know, crashing down on me. And that's what I do. I know that I do it. I do it. Mm. Yeah. And I'm frenetic. I'm frantic. My mania can like send me off in all these directions. And then all of a sudden the commitments and all the stuff that I've kind of clustered around comes and lands on mm-hmm. me. And that's where I've been at the last couple of days. You know, I was sitting in this cafe. Somebody cancelled their meeting because the tube was, you know, something or other. Anyway, this Greek guy just said, oh, I just had a look at you over your shoulder and saw your website and I went online and I looked at it and I love what you write about and, hey, can I buy you a second coffee? Would you like... Oh, my God. Called the waitress over and said, here, give this lady, Sarah, another coffee. And then he said, and how about I buy you some activated um, bircher um, off the menu? And I was like, no, no, that's fine. He said, no, I'm having one. I'd love you to have one. And he said, I don't like eating alone, but I'm going to sit over here because I can see you're busy. Anyway, my Bircher. What a moment. I, I know, love that. I know. And it doesn't was, happen anymore. It you happens know? when you're vulnerable. Yeah. It yeah, does. Yeah. It happens when you um, just are an open wound at times. And I've just found whenever I've traveled, humanity will come and mm. reach out. I think they can, I think we can all smell it in each yeah. other. And he was brave enough, you know, he was a 60 year old man, you know, and he was Greek and look, the Greeks are fabulous for that kind of thing. There's the word called philotomo and it means the love of honor or the honor of love. And it's a gesture that you do to strangers when you feel they're in a tough spot. Mm. And the Greeks are phenomenal with that kind of thing. Mm. They love reaching out to a stranger and just giving them a fig but I love or that. a meal or a, a room for the night. You it's know? so important. And, our, you know, all of our phone devices are stopping us from doing this because mm-hmm. they are creating a boundary. You know, I've done it myself when, say I'm walking from here down to the news agent there to go and buy, you know, paper or whatever. And I'm feeling a bit crap. Sometimes I will just go on my phone so I don't have to make eye contact with anyone. Yeah. And I know deep down that is shit. Yeah. And I don't want to do that. I actually yearn connection. But I've just got a bit lazy and I can't be asked. And I go into yeah. phone land. And it's stopping us from having those very normal, yeah. you know, 
throughout history, that's how we have met new people, connect with other humans. Yeah. And we're really stopping ourselves from doing that. We don't like being vulnerable. Okay. And so there's two sort of forces that go on with the human experience. We want to connect as a tribe and we need to do that to stay alive. We need the, the security of the tribe. But then we also need to retreat away from the humans, you know, and be on our own. And throughout history, we've had very stop gaps. So the church or, you know, government have ensured that that stays in quite a healthy balance yeah um but we've got nothing to control social media right i mean uh, mark zuckerberg's not going to you know suddenly go right we all need to connect a little bit more so i'm going to put a moratorium on facebook yeah, for a yeah. while he's, he's not, not going to do that right the government's not going to do it <laughs> no the church sure as hell isn't going no. to do it there's nobody to do it right so our worst behaviors are allowed to run rampant Mm. so we sometimes we are lazy and we don't want to connect at times we feel very raw about being vulnerable and you know you're probably you're not quite as old as me but you remember the days of dating before the internet oh my god yeah I'm I'm not far off 40 I completely remember not having a phone yeah I met my husband before social media was a big thing I just met him in a bar yeah and somebody had to be brave enough to kind of approach and then ask for the phone number it was me by the way oh was it okay Mm. well yeah that was kind of (laughs) a bit more contemporary than when I was a kid right well when I was first dating but you know the dude had to then ring there was no answering machine yeah um, or voicemail and he risked speaking to your dad right but he had to have the balls to do it and he did he strapped on his balls he did it and then you as a woman would kind of go oh yeah cool he's made an effort and so you'd go on the date and and go on from there and we were vulnerable and we hated it it was awful but there was no choice Mm. now we don't have to go there and so we we don't get the rewards of it Mm. you know I completely agree I think that when you'd mentioned risk to risk a few moments ago it really struck a chord because I think we're so scared of rejection. We're so mm, scared of somebody yeah. saying or ignoring us. You know, I remember reading a um, brilliant book by Marianne Power called Help Me. Have you read this no. book? I'll get it for you. It's yeah. brilliant. And she tries out all these different self-help books and actually commits to them and does it. And she does things like go oh, on I've the read train. A, a, an article extract about yeah, it. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. So she'll be on the tube and she'll just start talking. You know, we'd never do this on the tube going into the cent- central London yeah. or any big city you live in. Like, oh, hi, what book are you reading? like the lovely Greek guy who bought you some breakfast and just you know starting conversation and some people would absolutely blank her and just think she's mad which is ridiculous that because you're talking to someone you've gone mad and you're bonkers Mm. but it's so not the dumb thing um all other people would kind of start tentatively talking but would be very dubious and you know like why is this with a person trying to speak to me Yeah. yeah And um, it's such an interesting exercise because actually the only thing we're scared of is rejection. It's nothing else. So we disconnect so we don't have to even deal with the possibility. Yeah. Which is actually making us perhaps weaker as a species because we're not experiencing that failure as often as we should. And failure is valuable. It's playing out for kids today. After I finished First We Make the Beast Beautiful, a lot of parents came forward and said, what about kids? Like you know, there's an epidemic of anxiety amongst kids. And I was like, yeah, I don't know if that can be true because like during World War Two, you know, kids were having to like dodge bombs. You yeah, know what I mean? being evacuated to a new family. Yeah, exactly. So if you weigh up sort of the levels of anxiety between now and, you know, 50, 100, 20, 200 years ago, I would say that things are pretty cruisy, right? Mm. All in all, mm. you know, life is tough, but you know, yeah. it's not as bad as being bombed. So, yeah. I sort of looked into it and a British study came out as I was looking into it that found that actually conditions are not more 
you know, anxiety-inducing at all. In fact, the real issue is that kids are no longer as resilient, and that's because parents and culture is protecting the kids from having to face discomfort, right? So if a kid gets bored, you throw an iPad at them. Parents are so scared that their kids are going to sit around the house kind of moping about being bored and aimless and staring at the ceiling that they, you know, shuttle them off to ballet lessons and, you know, like all these different activities. And so kids are actually living out a kind of toggled life, Mm. right? As a result, they're not building resilience. They're not Mm. building up skills that can make them feel okay about shame or being rejected and things like that. And that that's well, the hardest thing about being a parent, parent, isn't it? Is allowing them to have that space to sit in that discomfort yeah. that we find hard as adults. And then you've got to go, you know what? I've got to let you sit through this yeah. pain and experience to build up that resilience. You know, you and I will know from from reading your book and what I know about you, any failures that you and I have been through have actually probably been one of the better parts of our lives because of that resilience but also uh the springboard that that can be for something else you know I'm sure you didn't want to have acute anxiety and be crouched on a table naked scrawling on a pad but you wrote some pretty bloody prolific powerful stuff out of it that have led you to where you are now you've got to go through it the question we've got to ask ourselves and this is something that doesn't get asked enough is do we want to be happy Or do we want to have joy, Mm. you know, and a rich life? And I think think a lot of what we do is try to chase kind of cheap happiness. Yeah. And avoid, which is, I receive avoidance. Yeah. Yeah. A rich life is a far better life. We've got, what, 85 odd years on the planet. I don't want to kind of have a smile on my dial and don't worry, be happy and all that kind of stuff. I want to live. Mm. And if that means I've got to go through, I don't know how many emotions there are. I think some people say there's 22 or something. If that means experiencing all of them so be it bring it on you know and so when we start to talk about these things feeling pain and vulnerability and shame becomes kind of okay yeah you know enriching yeah um yeah this brings me on to something that I've been personally I hadn't planned to talk about this but personally I've been pondering about this for the last couple of weeks I'm in a sort of place at the moment where I feel quite tired not all of the time, but, you know, just sort of life being hectic. And like you say, you overcommit things and lots of obligations and people that you want to do things with or for um, and family life. And I've been debating whether sometimes when I turn things down, usually social engagements, because I really usually enjoy my work way more than social stuff, which isn't necessarily great. I'm the same. No, I think it's fine. Yeah. I mean, Mm. I love, I feel bloody lucky. I love what I love sitting here talking to you now. I love writing. I love all the things I do. You're a creator. Yeah, I love it. Mm. And going out and just sort of free falling socializing, I don't feel as comfy with. So I've turned down so many things recently and I've been sat there going, right, am I turning these things down? Because I'm actually honoring that Truly, although I love communicating, I'm an introvert. I don't like big crowds. I don't like small talk. I like my own company. Or am I retreating from life? And I don't know the difference. I totally know where you're at. It's kind of one of those really... I don't know, juicy kind of questions that I reckon everyone who's listening knows exactly what you're talking Mm. about. I'm going through that at the moment because here I am in a foreign country and I've got the opportunity to take up options to go to a party. Like I've been invited to a party tonight that requires getting dressed up Mm. and I'm like, I should go there because, you know, who knows what might happen. But the idea of getting dressed up just, I mean, you know. It makes my toes curl. I know. I've got a backpack. You know, I've been in a (laughs) desert. Like my clothes are just kind of drenched in orange sand. But 
Yeah, I go through all of that. Look, how I try to navigate it is I try to go with where the charm is. And that might mean staying at home. It might mean saying yes. I have a couple of little ways of making decisions. The charm will manifest as a colourful image of the, the idea as opposed to a black and white. That's interesting. Yes, that's one way I'll navigate that, right? I mean, then the other thing I do is I also kind of try to listen to my gut. I hate when people say that because for years I'd go, listen to your gut, what does that mean? Like, what does that feel like? I don't even know what that means. But for me, it's an itchy feeling in my stomach. Mm. And I've forced myself over time to listen to that and realise that that's actually an important signal from my truest understanding. I've never grown up with that because I've been very uh, head orientated. I've been very ambitious. I'm just, I just, I bulldozer forward, right? And so it's very hard. Like, I don't know, Fern, when somebody says to you, listen to your gut, does that resonate? It does, does it... but then I can get so clouded with thought yeah, that my the intuition of feels yep. too muffled and, yeah. and foggy and weirdly I'm much better at making those very sort of gung-ho big decisions with big stuff like leaving a job yes yeah, I go yeah I know that it's right Absolutely. whereas if it's like do you want to come to a party tonight oh I'd, am I being yeah. a fool not going am I retreating from life am I being a loser or am I you know that I find yeah, impossible it's same, ridiculous same I'm exactly the same and even down to the minutiae of choosing a toothpaste sometimes yeah I can actually stall <laughs> in the supermarket mm. aisle and I do not know where to go yeah. but quit a job and go and live in an army shed in the forest, I can do that in in an afternoon. I you mean, know? You, you've got great experience of this. You had, you know, a hugely high-powered job uh, and you were the editor of Cosmopolitan in, in Australia yeah. and then you were like, I'm out. Yeah, I've done it quite a few times. I did it with MasterChef as well. I hosted the first series in Australia, which, you know, everyone thought I was the luckiest person on the planet. I was dying inside. Mm. My soul was like gradually being eroded, you know, and I just walked away from it after the first season. Yeah, those decisions are easy for me because Mm. they're actually non-negotiable. I mean, if I don't, I will literally erupt. Yeah. It's so violent, the feeling inside me. So I'm guided, luckily, in that way. I also am not motivated by money and that makes a really big difference. So the most recent kind of thing that I did that, you know, people have wondered about is I closed down my I Quit Sugar business and gave all the money to charity and now all the proceeds from I Quit Sugar and I sort of have a few projects that still fund it, I give to charity. So I now get to do fun charity projects that I just invent yeah, and then the money goes to it and I match any money I raise with my own money. It's incredible. I've read, I've read many articles about you doing this and it's been incredibly inspiring and, and it's funny to see people's reaction because when you make yeah, a big decision right, yeah, like that, people yeah. can't quite understand it. Was there an epiphany moment where you thought, you know what, earning a salary or earning a certain amount isn't going to fulfill me or have you always inherently had that kind of outlook on life? So I grew up that way with my parents being minimalist by necessity because they just had no money and they had too many kids. So I grew up that way, but I think it just starts to, you know, become part of the fabric of your thinking. And I actually kind of, as I got older and I started to make money, I was just like, "Mm, I don't need this. I'm Mm. so used to not needing things. And I actually then started to realize there's freedom in that. So I kind of just kept going and going. And even at Cosmo, I rode my bike to work every day. I mean, I was, it struck everybody as odd because everybody else would clack in in their four-wheel drives and their high heel shoes. And I'd be wearing pair of shorts and 
and an old T-shirt and pretty much would stay in that all day, even as the editor of Cosmo. <laughs> and I'd have an outfit, you know, um, in my drawer if I had to go to an event. Yeah, I'd go, yeah. oh, shit, I better put something fancy on. <laughs> and I've always kind of been like that. I've never owned a handbag in my life. I just don't buy into that kind of thing. So it doesn't interest me. And so I guess I'm very lucky in that way. But I think the other aspect of it all is that <laughs> Look, he's trying to creep in here like we're not going to hear. <laughs> this is just that, this was, is com- that was comedy tiptoeing, wasn't it? Look, Hello. Look, this is where I come for the car. Oh, lovely <laughs> to meet you. I love your uh, matching t shirts. Oh I can see where. T-shirt. Yeah. I know. Go get the kids. Bye. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I first found out about you because of Jesse. Yeah, you said. Because Valentine's Day, he bought me your I Quit Sugar book. And I was dabbling with the idea. This is years ago now. That was the first time that I had learned about what you did and then sort of went on a bit of a rabbit hole on the internet of what you were doing and how. Yeah. And, and it struck me as fascinating then because it was quite new. You were quite a maverick in that arena. Yeah, people did think I was mad. Mm. Like I had a dangerous diet that I was pushing and I was cutting out an entire food group. I just don't see sugar as an entire food group. But it's amazing, isn't it, now how it's just accepted? Yeah. As we understand that sugar is is just not great. Yeah. 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 But you are like absolutely gung-ho about it. You have none. No, not at all. No, I actually do eat um, sugar. Oh, you do have some? Yeah, yeah. I'm always very, very kind of honest about this. I eat chocolate every single day, but I choose really dark chocolate. I'm just alive to how much sugar is in stuff and I make my choices. So, yeah, I I eat a couple of teaspoons of sugar every day in one form or another, but I choose not to have it in fruit juice or in, you know, fizzy drinks or anything like that. Instead, I choose chocolate. If somebody's made a birthday cake and they've put a lot of work into it, of course I'll eat some of it. I know myself to know that I will eat kind of go mental if I eat too much of it or if I start eating a bit I watch myself I get addicted and I just want to eat the whole cake mm, I'm the same uh, yeah remember that episode on Sex and the City where Miranda oh, gets given the cake the tray bake and I then she's got to put and she's got to put it in the bin and pour water on it, it out. Yeah, it's because amazing. otherwise it's amazing she, yeah. I'm so I'm we all get so it. I'm so that We've just jumped all over the place, haven't I know, we? I know. I can't I, remember where we were at. too many questions in my head, but I, we were talking about you. I'll give you away the business and yes. me being a little bit weird and what did people <laughs> think, right? Yeah. So it did throw people. For the first six months, people really didn't really understand it. And like the media were interviewing me about sh- shutting down the business and, you know, what was I going to do next and all. And they completely missed the bit that I was now working on these kind of other cool charity projects and I'd be able to kind of raise enough money to put all this stuff together. And it was just kind of this kind of thing, blocked vision. And then it took another six months and then people started to get it. And now it's starting to get some momentum. And I think that's just how the life works. I've watched it so many times I watched it with the sugar thing and then I worked a lot in the food waste space so I produced the world's first zero food waste cookbook and you know it took a while for that to take off but it's starting to get momentum now because it only came out a bit over a year ago I just think that that's how life works you know Mm. I think it was Oppenheimer said you know first an idea is derided as insane then we sort of start to accept it and then it's just considered self-evident yeah yeah and people you know go with that momentum and yeah a community is built from that yeah but I love that um you know you do things your own way and it seems as an outsider that Mm. you are able to perhaps foresee what that reaction might be but not care because you know like you say when you're being interviewed about the fact that 
you're downing tools and you're giving all your money away to charity and you're letting go of something that was seen as powerful and important and big yeah. that, that the press want to go there must be some failure involved here there yeah. must be something that's yeah. gone wrong and you're going no no I decided yeah. that this is what I want to do and you're able to do that without I mean that is a true maverick without really giving a shit what other people are going to say yeah. or react like yeah I mean when I when I quit MasterChef all the headlines said I was fired because they couldn't conceptualise <laughs> anything else. And that did hurt at the time. I think over, you know, over time I've developed a resilience to it. And also I suppose I do smile at it now. And I have this kind of technique for dealing with trolls in the early days of trolls. I treat it as a tennis ball coming towards me. Somebody's serving a ball at me. And I could either put a lot of effort into trying to catch it and then fling it back, or I could just let it fly past mm. me and just kind of land flaccidly behind me. Yeah. Where it's not going to go any further. But it does take, I think what you're saying, Fern, is like when you go to the edge, right, in anything that you do, and it might be just saying hello to somebody on a tube, right, you have to expect to be cut. You have to expect to be bleed. To bleed. Mm. But it's not that bad. It's become quite addictive in yeah. some ways. That's where life really happens. Mm. And in some ways, I go to that edge to kind of connect and to experience where life is really at. Life happens out on the outer limbs, mm. you know, out mm. in the breeze. Well, there's those extremes of like, what's the guy in that Oscar-winning climbing film and he climbs the top of Yosemite I, Rock? With, oh, uh, and has to chop off his hand. Is it that one? That one's Dawnwall. He's amazing. I love him. But there's one who does it without a rope. Right. And he climbs the whole face face of the huge rock in Yosemite without a rope. And it's almost like he can't feel alive unless yeah. he's teetering really quite, you know, quite Close literally on the edge. Yeah. But you're doing it. And I think I do it in my own way uh, with your own personal boundaries. Because I'll yep. do it where I'll accept a really shit scary gig that I know is yeah. going to make me feel terrible. I'll probably feel anxious for a week, dread it, do it, and feel so alive. Yeah, but the so ang- amazing. I think that is part of the ang- anxious condition. I actually do. I go off hitchhiking just to and really, yeah, just to uh, test yourself. Yeah, and also I took up ocean swimming, and and I swim in in water with sharks in it. You know, really, um, I kind of do it, I suppose, because when you're anxious and you get anxious about dumb shit in the middle of the night, sometimes going and doing something legit, you know, like anxiety causing makes us feel sort of like we're okay. We're, we're going through a process that makes sense. Does that mm. make sense? No, it does. You know, so it that's really why I think does. So many people, in perspective. I think so many people who do have anxiety often have anxious kind of jobs so do you say that today you can make sense of your anxiety yeah but I've got to be vigilant it's not like it's just kind of comes naturally I've got to be alive to it all the time and it's a work in progress and I have moments where I I do collapse in a heap and also my mania can often take me off into the stratosphere for a while I think vigilance learning sheer years on the planet where I can turn back and see the dots all line up and it a picture starts to form and I go, ah, okay, and that's what happens when I do that. So I can start to see why things happen the way they do. And the final thing is meditation. So mm. meditation, just it's just a skill where I have to keep coming back. It's a myself. daily practice? Yeah. In what form? How do you like to do it? I do it with, I do the Vedic style. 
So similar to the transcendental, um, and it's a mantra, and I do it for 20 minutes. I try to do it twice a day. I mean, on the way here in the car, I just I did it for, what, 10 minutes because I just had that opportunity and I've been feeling a bit frazzled. And so I just figured, oh, well, take advantage of the time that I've got. Mm. Um, I don't get draconian. As soon as somebody puts a rule on me, I want to bust out of that. Yeah. So I just allow that freedom that if it's once a day, twice a day, sometimes I don't. I skip a day. I try to do it as often as I can because it and makes a difference. How does your anxiety um, manifest itself in These your days? everyday life now? Yeah, so I would say insomnia. Yeah, it's kind of just the gnarly old thing that yeah. just won't go away. And I still have a conversation in my head around that that provides some peace. Like I just know that it's about getting stuff out, mm. you know. And I sometimes accept in the middle of the night when it's quiet, that's the only time when I can really unfurl some of the, the psychic kind of build up, you know, mm. from the day. Yeah, I decision making. I'm yeah. still trying to finesse that because decisions are my undoing. You know, like you say, do I go out? Do I not? I've got to find somewhere to live in the next week. You know, going on Airbnb, do I take the place with the, you know, the chintz sheets or the, you know, <laughs> um, all that kind of stuff. So decision making can just really undo me. And then, yeah, I would say it also plays out. I do have anxiety meltdowns and I would be really honest as well. I'm single. And I know that that's a frontier, a final frontier for me. I've been single for 12, 13 years. And I know that I, in some way, I protect other people from having to be exposed to those very personal moments of my anxiety. So my obsessive compulsive disorder and my mania, they're very private. And I've previously had boyfriends who were very understanding and would hold my energy in that space. But as I've got older, I guess I get scarier you know to the opposite sex as you get older because you kind of you've got a good life and the bar gets raised and you've got more complexity and the bar gets raised and Mm. so the caliber of person who's going to meet you and be able to hold you in that space it just becomes higher and higher Mm. so that's a big part of the missing part of my anxiety journey you know mm. I haven't been able to bring somebody in to my life and feel safe that they can handle my stuff and do you think that's about optimism do you feel like in the future that person is just going to arrive without you controlling it or without you feeling yeah. like actually I've picked the right person they're going to contain this that actually the universe is just going to drop that person into your world I have faith Mm. I have faith that all of it's happening for a reason and it's just, you know, leaving things open for that wonderful, (laughs) magical unicorn that's going to step in. But um, in the meantime, I am very committed to my work and I also recently chose not – I made a very big decision not to have children and I had the opportunity, let's say, to do it and that's a huge thing in my heart and it's a big source of grief that just sits there and I'll sit there for the rest of my life to be honest however I have faith that what I'm doing the work that I'm doing will lead to a nourishment and a depth to my life that is important I feel that way about finding a partner in life as well Mm. that it'll be the right person when it's the right moment and in the meantime you know I've got work to do yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, God, I can't thank you enough for your honesty. It's just a joy to sit here talking. And I know that outside of this podcast, our conversation will continue. And yeah. um, I'm really happy to have connected with you. And I look forward to you know us meeting again at some point. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Sarah, you wonderful human being. Remember, walking barefoot is great. Just maybe not this time of year. If you're loving your time spent with me here on Happy Place, tell me about it. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find the show. And to find out who's on next week, find us on Instagram, at Happy Place Official. Thanks again to Sarah, to the producer Matt Hill at Rethink Audio, and to you for listening. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.